Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and this is the place to find beautiful and broken companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, here you'll meet embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and different cultures. They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners just like you and me. Today, I'm here to tell you the story of John Wesley with political science scholar and activist Laricia Hawkins. I'm pleased you're here with us. John Wesley's mother takes the prize as the spiritual superwoman of all time. Susanna Wesley never missed her daily holy disciplines or her weekly spiritual interviews with each of her children. Yet out of her 19 kids, Susanna was convinced that little son John had a special call from God. Born in 1703, John Wesley was zealous in his faith, As a teenager, he declared the absolute impossibility of being half a Christian and devoted himself 100% to God. John regulated his life strictly, rose at four in the morning for prayer, declared idleness a sin, and rejected all leisure. When John Wesley and his brother Charles left home for Oxford University, there would be no rowdy frat parties for those two. Instead, the Wesley brothers, convinced that they could not be saved without holiness, formed a spiritual society. Each member was required to lead a holy life, received the Eucharist once a week, to pray, to study scripture three hours daily, and perform community service. These guys were hardcore, earning them the derision of other Oxford students who mocked their holy club and called them Methodists. But John was energized by the achievements of the College Holy Club and stepped up for the next sacred challenge, to evangelize America. He'd convert the rough colonists of Savannah to Christ and then move on to Native Americans in the wilds. It'd be awesome. But on John's trip across the Atlantic, an epic storm blew in, splitting the mainsails into pieces. John was sure of imminent death. Then, through the driving rain, John saw something remarkable. A cluster of passengers were calmly singing psalms through the tempest. After the storm subsided, John sought out the people he'd seen at worship, a group of German Moravian Christians. John asked their leader, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. John pressed him, but were not your women and children afraid? No, he mildly replied, our women and children are not afraid to die. Then the German asked John a question of his own. Do you have faith in Christ? 
do you have faith in Christ? John's answer had always been an automatic yes, of course. Everybody knew that John had grown up with faith, talked endlessly about faith in Christ. He'd followed his parents' prescription for spiritual success. But what good was this confident faith if it deserted him in the face of death? John's storm scare was the first of many tribulations. The missionary trip to Georgia was an utter fiasco. Unimpressed by the young minister's fancy title, agent for the Society of the Propagation of the Gospel, the rowdy settlers rejected John's extreme holy club tactics. In a series of crazy events, John got tangled up in a romance gone bad a church controversy, and a public trial, and then he made a narrow escape out of Savannah. The upstanding young Christian evangelist had made a mess of things. He hadn't even ventured out of the port city to preach to the heathens. John returned to England to regroup. Captivated by the memory of those unflappable singing Germans, he got to know their Moravian leader in London, Peter Buhler. Peter spoke of God's tangible love, his own inward certainty of faith, and personal victory over sin in the here and now. One May evening in 1738, John stopped in at the Moravians' worship meeting on Aldersgate Street. There was no talk of spiritual bravado or rigid rules. The message John heard was simple and direct. Believe and be saved. Could it be? Was that all that was needed? John's spiritual striving was undone, and that's when God acted most powerfully. The Holy Spirit brought about something dynamic, something alive, a fiery spirituality. That spring night, listening to the words of Scripture, John's soul woke up and later he would write these words. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me. John's encounter with God was no sugary magical moment or out of the blue conversion. It was a personal reorientation to the biblical truths he'd already known intellectually. But now his faith in God was deeply his own. John resolved to preach freedom and grace everywhere. Freaked out by Wesley's enthusiasm, authorities of the staid British churches closed their doors to him. No matter, John took it to the streets, inspired by the example of George Whitfield a pastor friend from Oxford days. The whole world is my parish, John declared as he preached outdoors to impromptu congregations of up to 20,000 people. Emboldened by a new pastoral calling, some days he preached four, even five sermons. And John's listeners were working-class poor, people who'd been neglected by the established church and depressed by the forces of industrializing England. They were seekers, hungry for God's liberation. John talked about God's love, 
the essential heart of faith, as a love that goes out and gets involved in the messy world. John summed it up in a well-known aphorism. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Whether he was on the front lines fighting slavery or organizing his Methodists into small committed fellowships, John's passion was all-consuming. Upstanding church people wished that John would bring Christianity back indoors to the respectability of pulpit and pew, the familiar holy club disciplines of law, guilt, and doctrine. But for John Wesley, once he'd felt his heart strangely warmed by the Spirit and had embraced the promise of God's wild, abundant life, there was no going back. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is the audio companion to my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. To learn more, visit my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and invite your friends to join us. Now for my conversation about John Wesley with Larisha Hawkins. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Larisha Hawkins, who is an American scholar, author, and speaker. The Reverend Jesse Jackson called Larisha Hawkins a modern-day Rosa Parks after her activism ignited a national and international conversation about the nature of God and about the possibilities for multi-faith solidarity. Her story has been told in the New York Times Magazine and is the subject of an award-winning documentary film, Same God. Dr. Hawkins is general faculty at the University of Virginia, where she teaches in the departments of politics and religious studies, and she serves in the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab. I'm delighted to have her as a Charlottesville neighbor and grateful to count her a friend. Welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast, Larisha. Thank you, Karen. It's really good to be with you today. Very excited to talk to you. Yes. Well, let's talk about John Wesley. I just have to smile at the image of young John Wesley and his brother Charles at Oxford University. So earnest, you know, so disciplined as they headed up their holy club, convinced that none could be saved without holiness. And so I'm curious to know what you were like as a college student. Uh Well, for me as a college student, I was very involved in a holy club, you might call it, Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew for short. I really kind of, from high school going to college, wanted to, as I recall putting it, not to sink with regards to my own Christian faith, but to swim. And, you know, I was at Rice University, which is an amazing academic institution, but it's not necessarily known for being hospitable to religion, broadly speaking, Christianity. But 
I think my first year of college, I had a lot of friends who were from a variety of, you know, social sets, the partiers, the folks who didn't party a lot, but who weren't involved in Christian groups like me. I was trying to figure out where I fit in, where I belonged. And ultimately, I settled on a campus crusade for Christ Bible study, which was fairly small. Two upperclassmen who lived across the hall from me were very involved and had invited me to an ice cream social. And so I remember just finding it a source of accountability somewhat. There were large group meetings that kind of supplemented the small group Bible study, all kinds of crazy like group dates and activities and things like that. And so I would say I was a member of a holy club. I also think I look back at my undergraduate years and think about all of the friends I had who were not of a religious ilk at all, who nevertheless like warmly embraced me where I was on my journey. Mm. Even though I may have tried to thrust a four spiritual laws, which is a Christian track about um, the fact that God has a wonderful plan for your life and we're all sinners and we're all going to hell and Jesus is the bridge. And do you want Jesus on the throne of your life or do you want to be on the throne of your life? So it literally brought people to a decision point in a very evangelical way, like choose Jesus as your savior, pray the sinner's prayer. I went on mission trips for spring break to share the four spiritual laws on the beach. And I spent one summer actually in Virginia Beach, which is really funny that I've ended up living in Virginia again. And I look back and I find that, to be honest, fascinating and strange. And I also think this is where I was on my journey. And and I was sincere. And I think that's what my college friends saw. They didn't judge me, even if they did internally. They did not outwardly reject me. And I think it was because that was really where I was on my journey. And I was zealous about it. So, yeah. So I feel like a little affinity, right, for John Wesley's, um, you know, his holy huddle, right? Because yeah. I, I was part of one, right? I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, me too. You said four, four spiritual laws and I saw yellow. Um, I can feel that little pamphlet in my hand. And I, I too, I look back and I thought, wow. And I love that person that I was and the person who you were, who, you know, was so sure and, and so truly sincere, you know, with every good intention. And well, of course, John Wesley, he was off to a great start, but his missionary trip to America was a disaster. It was a total fiasco. And I'm just thinking back again about our own lives, yours and mine, and asking the question, you know, what is it about failure that hopefully prepares us for better things? Yeah, I think for me, failure is something that should be embraced. And I think broadly speaking, we've been acculturated in the United States to think about failure as abysmal. I think entrepreneurs are expected to kind of try things but what we don't hear, we hear the success part, but we, we often don't hear or we neglect to pay attention to the failure part. Um, venture capitalists, we hear about them. You know, What makes them interesting is they're willing, they have the, both the, you know, the material capital, the money, but 
there's also a zeitgeist around being willing to try things and learn from mistakes. And now psychologists call this resilience, but life is vulnerable. Life is difficult and failure is part of life. And learning that resilience, failure is not totalizing of the whole self. And I think that somewhere along the way, I internalized the lie that if I failed at something, I was just this huge sinner, right? Mm, Um, That it was equated in my mind with sin. Like I hadn't done, I hadn't tried hard enough, or I was too lazy to master X, Y, or Z. Or I think failure is something that we would do well to grapple with. And, And actually just to admit and to speak out loud, like, well, I really messed that up. And learn how to, as one one book calls it, like falling upward or failing upward, um, using failure as a way to elevate our consciousness, elevate our discipline, um, elevate who we are, become more of who we are. Um, and I think failure can teach us those things if we're willing to learn from from those mistakes, those errors, as it were. Yeah. I think we're, I'm hearing more and more in the culture about failure and resilience and and vulnerability too. All those things that go together. So maybe hearing it more and more, it will help help us actually live by it and believe it. Yeah. But like you, I mean, avoiding risk doesn't avoid our you know our vulnerability or you know our weakness. We're we're always just so close to the edge of that. And, and you know, I imagine John Wesley on that ship coming back from America already completely demoralized and, you know, being swept up in the storm and just crying for his life. And so, you know, all of his holiness, all of his hard righteousness work uh, was just swept away in a simple, in a simple storm. And I really feel for him because I know, I know what that feels like. Right. Well, Larisha, to, to listeners who've heard John Wesley's name, but don't know much about him, what would you say to them by way of introduction to John Wesley? Well, I think one of the most important kind of historical things that Wesley bequeaths besides, you know, he and his brother are famously credited with being foundational to the development of um, an entire kind of Protestant movement. But I, I think one of the most important things about Wesley is that that failure, if you will, was then really catalyzed into the way that he himself went about preaching and teaching the word in his lifestyle to say that the whole world is his parish. And for those not kind of familiar with the parish model, it's it's this idea of like kind of the church is where you live, right? It's it's very local, it's neighborhood. And so I I think that it's that's very um it's very much a Jesus statement, right? Go to the world and, and teach all nations. But I I actually have just begun to think about that that great commission of Jesus to the disciples as an invitation to be Jesus to the world. And I think that this is what he did. You know, this is what really spurs 
historically circuit riding kind of preaching throughout the United States, the spread of Christianity throughout the Western frontier of the United States. I think people either have this kind of little house on the prairie vision of what Christianity was like in the U.S., this idea that people lived on homesteads and farms and in what is now called the Midwest, but that was the kind of Western frontier at that point, that everyone was churched. And in fact, church attendance, rates of church attendance were were actually very low. And so this sparks a whole new kind of revival in the United States. I think an important thing to add to that is this was not just relegated to a religious sphere of life. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to make churches and nothing else matters. And he was also a famous abolitionist of his time. Um, He was an anti-slavery advocate. And so I think that those are very important, two very important things that John Wesley kind of contributes in terms of a model and an example of really coming out of the holy club, holy huddle, kind of genuflecting on ourselves, flexing our spiritual muscles together and being so immune to the ways that we are just called to be Jesus' feet and Jesus' hands in the world. So I think it's an important step towards saying the good news belongs in the world and like being good news in the world is how the world is ultimately transformed, um, how justice is ultimately accomplished. And so that's how I think about Wesley, um, not just as a Methodist, as he's become kind of conflated with someone who just does the right things, right? But someone who lives out of a place of conviction. Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, and you you think about his story. I mean, once he had his catastrophic failures, you know, he was truly reconverted and he started preaching about liberation and love and grace. And these were topics that the established church, you know, it upset the established church and they wouldn't even let him inside their sanctuaries. So, you know, there he is preaching out on soap, literally on soapboxes. Right. And- from horseback and you know on the preaching for, right on the street to yeah thousands of people and I just find it like you said um, we think of him as this establishment figure but in fact he challenged the dehumanizing forces of England of course it was industrializing at the time and so I wonder you know from his position really as an outsider or as someone on the edge of that time, what he might say to established churches today, or what his invitation might be, or his challenge. Mm. I remembered now that he has this quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? And I think one of the most important things about that transformation, that like, kind of rebaptism, if you will, you know, people believe lots of things about that in Protestantism, right? But like, I think one of the most important things that he would say to the church is Jesus is in the streets, right? Jesus would be at the Black Lives Matter march. 
this may be controversial to some people, Jesus would be at the gay pride parade. Jesus would be where people are who are oppressed, who are hurting, where the least of society are, where the poor and the down and out are. So Jesus would not be in the pews praying for justice. Jesus would be doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. That's in the streets. And that's that's the transformation that happened to Wesley. Moving out from the holy club, the holy huddle, into the world. And that's, I think, what his story, what your chapter does beautifully is point out the ways that, you know, he and his brother are at Oxford. They start the holy, you know, they start, you know, this club, right? They, they literally birth a denomination. But I think what is more important about John Wesley is that he was transformed toward God's people, not transformed into a building, not transformed into a method, not transformed to you know, be on the front lines of defending a denomination, it's important to note that what Wesley was concentrated on was preaching freedom. What the Holy Spirit brings, what God's Spirit brings, is a sense of freedom, freedom in Jesus, liberty. The Spirit of the Lord brings liberty. And that liberty gives us all the freedom in the world to act and back to a previous question that we talked about, to fail, yeah. to fail, to mess up. And I think I find it so fascinating, too, that there's all the freedom and there's also the method. I mean, he held on to his ideas about organizing and small groups and parishes, as you said. So that structure allows for freedom, you know, it allows for people to gather, you know, there is that, that complete picture of freedom within practice, within doctrine, within belief. Well, and I thought about your comment about Jesus being in the streets, the famous quote from John Wesley, you know, do all, do all the good that you can wherever you can. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. That just, that, that opens up every possibility. Well, thank you, Larisha, for speaking about John Wesley today and for sharing a bit about your own Holy Club experiences. <laughs> of course, my pleasure. I truly feel for young John Wesley, so determined to be holy and then so crushed when his own piety fails to save him. Larisha Hawkins helps me embrace this famous Christian in a new way, as a person who is able to learn, to change, to grow, to serve, to make a truly lasting difference in the world. Karen Wright Marsh, the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Come by my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. There you'll find show notes and learn about my book, 
Vintage Saints and Sinners. Download free printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections.